0: Today, I, I want to follow up on that topic somewhat. Uh, last week, in the discussion on commitment and practice and motivation and practice, um, somebody had mentioned their motivation being to um, practice not only for themselves but for um, but for others as well. And I want to particularly focus on on that topic tonight. This is um, commonly known in, in Buddhist teachings as uh, Bodhicitta. You've probably heard of Bodhisattva, especially since it was a steely dance song. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: But, um,. And they're very closely related. Uh, bodhisattva, the word bodhi means awaken, awakened or enlightened. You know, the Bodhi tree, the tree of enlightenment that the Buddha sat under. Buddha comes from the same root as Bodhi. Buddha, one who is awake. So it means awakened, it means enlightened, it means uh, wisdom. And Bodhisattva, or Bodhisatta in the Pali, Sattva is the Sanskrit, is one who is on the path to awakening. The Buddha, before he was the Buddha in his previous lifetimes, was known as the Bodhisattva by us, not by the other people he was traveling around with. They didn't say, oh, you're the Bodhisattva. But um, he was on the path to enlightenment retrospectively he was the Bodhisattva and when one takes the Bodhisattva vow it is uh, it has a few different definitions but one definition is um, one is on the path to full Buddhahood there's another definition one is going to work for the relieving, for the ending of suffering for all beings and postponing one's own enlightenment until uh, everyone is enlightened. So that's bodhisattva. There's this other word bodhicitta. The word citta, c-i-t-t-a, in Pali in Sanskrit, the C has a ch sound. Chitta is a word that means both heart and mind. Sometimes it's translated as heart mind. Bodhicitta is awakened or enlightened mind or heart. You can play either way. And so it comes out in a few different definitions. One way you could say is the awakened heart. Another is um, the wisdom heart. Or, came across a definition, the heart of our enlightened mind, bodhicitta. And it refers to two aspects. There is the Absolute bodhicitta, the ultimate bodhicitta, which is really pointing to this seed inside of us that is opening to the truth of who we really are, seeing that we are not separate. It's the it's the Um, The capacity in all of us, the Buddha in all of us, you know, the Buddha, when he was moved to teach, he saw that people were doing just the things that cause suffering in their quest for happiness, and he saw many people with, as the phrase says, but a little dust covering their eye, covering their clarity of vision, and He saw that if they had the understandings and the tools that he could share, that they would discover who they really are. The only difference between a Buddha or an enlightened person and an unenlightened person is that a Buddha knows that he's enlightened. And there is perfection that is expressing itself through him or her. And the rest of us don't. We forget that. We don't realize that. This is one of the things that I love about um, the Buddha's teachings. It was very different than coming from Judeo-Christian background where I had a kind of fix myself and get over original sin of getting kicked out of the Garden of Eden and, even, and maybe if I repented and did enough good I could get over my guilt and feel worthy of God's love. That's what my mind did with it anyway. Now that's not what I think the highest teachings of Jesus or Judaism Reveal, But that's how it came down to me and what my mind interpreted with it. Jesus said, the kingdom of God is within you. It's not really any different. But hearing the Buddhist teaching and hearing, which is also not so different in Hinduism in a way, that we are already enlightened. We are already perfect. We just forget it or we are obscured in our understanding. Ah, I don't have to fix myself up, it's just uncovering the the beauty that is already there shining through. So this absolute bodhicitta is that innate perfection that we are, that we can discover as we set our hearts and our minds in that intention to discover. Bodhicitta also in this absolute sense refers to the the seed of this discovery, this glimpse that needs to be watered. You know, we hear the call out of our confusion, out of our pain or our suffering. That says, like there's got to be more to life. There's got to be something greater and Perhaps you have uh, had some conflicts with religion in your uh, uh, religion of, of birth and uh, you're, you're, ha- you're having that spiritual yearning. What that spiritual yearning is we could say is the seed of enlightenment. It's, as, it's like hearing the call of the mystery or the universe inviting you to discover itself to reveal itself. So this seed, which we can nourish and nurture through formal meditation practice, through community, through reading, through whatever different tools, this is also called bodhicitta, the seed of enlightenment. It also refers, on a relative level, that is not the ultimate absolute truth but on a relative level where it's on the physical plane you and me and we seem to be separate to that intention that intention to understand and live that connection that we have to everyone else. Because you might know intellectually, yes, we're all one. That's what it says in A Path with Heart or whatever book you're reading. Yeah, and it sounds good. Yeah, and I really believe that. It really makes sense. We're all one in, in the universe. But there's my boyfriend, you know, and he's really annoyed me this week. Or there's my colleague, or there's my kid, or there's my difficult person, and it's hard to remember we're all one when we're in the middle of the stuff, or even when we're not having a difficulty, it seems from where we stand, unless we're in that open unity space, that there is me and the rest of life and other. And there are people and other creatures, all beings, going through their own pain and suffering that I don't quite feel unless I'm quite tuned into it. And so this relative bodhicitta is perhaps having an intellectual understanding of the unity, but that's not that's not the the prime source of one, that's not the prime connection in one's actions, one simply feels moved to practice because one feels the suffering of others around. This is the compassionate heart. And one practices, one cares about others, and one practices and works on oneself for the benefit of of not only ourselves, but of all beings. Again, this is what moved the Buddha to teach. Even after he understood that absolute truth, there was living on the relative plane. He actually, as the story goes, hung out under the Bodhi tree for about seven weeks, just sitting and walking and. Uh, enjoying the fruits of his discovery, saying, "Wow!" I don't know if he said "Wow," but he said <laughs> he probably didn't say much. He probably just hmm, felt it and was perfectly content to do that for a while. And then, as I said, he was he was besieged uh, besieged by uh, The story goes, the devas saying, hey, take a look around, and he saw people in suffering and was moved and spent the rest of his life working really hard, uh, but from a place of joy and compassion to relieve suffering on the relative level. And this is the Bodhisattva vow. Now, it seems like a pretty lofty place to be coming from, I will relieve the suffering of all around, as the vow says, or I will practice for the benefit of all beings. But actually, it's not so remote and far uh, out of reach to practice with that motivation. If you're practicing waiting for everybody to get better, um, it can be a little discouraging. <laughs> There's a, a famous uh, sutta, the sutta of uh, Huineng, who is uh, one of the great Chinese patriarchs. He says, "Learned audience, all of us." Have now declared that we vow to deliver an infinite number of sentient beings. But what does this mean? It does not mean that I, Hui Nang, am going to deliver them. And who are these sentient beings within our own mind? They are the delusive mind, the deceitful mind, the evil mind, and such like minds. All these are sentient beings each of them has to deliver itself by means of its own essence of mind. Then the deliverance is genuine. So he's saying we can free all beings by freeing our own mind. Mm -hmm. Um, Trunk Borentashe has a nice way of putting it. He says... Traditionally, this vow is taken that from today until the attainment of enlightenment, I devote my life to work with sentient beings and renounce my own attainment of enlightenment. Actually, we cannot attain enlightenment until we give up the notion of me personally attaining it. As long as the enlightened drama has a central character, me, Who has certain attributes, there's no hope of attaining enlightenment because it's nobody's project. It's an extraordinarily strenuous project, but nobody is pushing it. The Bodhisattva vow acknowledges confusion and chaos aggression, passion, frustration, frivolousness as part of the path. The path is like a busy, broad highway complete with roadblocks, accidents, construction work and police. It is quite terrifying. Nevertheless, it is majestic, it is the great path. From today onward until the attainment of enlightenment, I am willing to live with my chaos and confusion as well as with that of all other sentient beings. I'm willing to share our mutual confusion. So no one is playing a one-upmanship game. The Bodhisattva is a very humble pilgrim who works in the soil of samsara to dig out the jewel embedded in it. So you don't have to have that responsibility of fixing everyone, but seeing that you're not so different from everyone as you understand this more, you are naturally contributing to more wisdom in the world and in your own seemingly small way, but not so small, uh, bringing more understanding and awakening. And that has its rippling effect. And when we can bring this attitude, not just of the bodhisattva, but of the bodhicitta, which is much more accessible, To practice for others, it gives a real depth and uh, meaning to our practice. It's a mysterious thing, but human beings have this innate impulse to do that, to want to share and want to relieve suffering. It often gets obscured, but it's there, it really is. I remember when I was going to college uh, in in New York City, and uh, this is early 60s, (coughs) and I went through this real existential crisis where I just didn't understand what the meaning of life was, and thought I should. <clears throat> and I was really difficult to be with, unpleasant to be with. I was, it was a very, it was a very depressing period. For about a month, I just didn't see any point to life. You get born, you hang out for a while and then you die. It's a big deal. Okay. What's the point? Why am I here? Why are we here? I got into a lot of annoying discussions with my friends. who fortunately still remained my friends through it all. And then at the end of that time, the only thing I could come up with that could give my life meaning was to bring a little bit more happiness into the world. I said, well, I really do like it when I see so-and-so happy, it feels good. You know? I like to sing with people, I like to see people laugh. You know? and I didn't think it was such a satisfactory answer at the time, but it was the best I could do. But actually, it's not a bad motivation, it does give some meaning, oh yeah, well, seeing some happiness, bringing some, some joy to people that gives life meaning and we have this impulse not only to want to see people laugh but to really put ourselves on the line to relieve suffering there was an article today in the Chronicle I don't know how many of you saw it about the senator John McCain uh, going to Vietnam how many people saw that today a couple it's pretty far out isn't it just just read a a little of it senator this is Hanoi John McCain a young US bomber pilot in Vietnam ought to have died that October day in 1967 but a stranger an enemy soldier saved his life McCain now a senior US senator got a chance yesterday to thank that stranger He met with 79-year-old Mai Van On, the man who pulled his broken body from Hanoi's Trafbrac Lake 29 years ago during the Vietnam War. His aircraft, going down in flames, McCain bailed out over Hanoi. Dazed by the jolt of ejecting from the damaged plane, he drifted helplessly into the lake's cold waters where without Ahn, he probably would have drowned. He's a wonderful man, McCain said. It's very touching to talk with him. They hugged for a moment yesterday. There's a picture in the paper. Then reminisced about that dreary day in 1967. Ahn swam into the 16 foot deep water to rescue the semi-conscious and badly wounded McCain. When he got McCain to shore, Ahn was greeted by a jeering crowd that would sooner have let the American aviator die. Some in the crowd threatened the young American. McCain was jolted by a blow from a rifle butt against his already broken arm. A bayonet pierced his foot. Ahn stepped in once again and stopped the crowd the senator said. The rescue came as Americans... This is later on. Um, I didn't know why I saved him at the time, Owen said. But now I know he is an important American senator who's trying to help Vietnam. He was there to, to help exchange. It's such a mystery, an enemy soldier facing a jeering crowd and then stepping in again at the risk of his own life what moves us to do that it was I think Kierkegaard who talked about that that we we have this strange capacity that separates us from almost all the rest of life on this planet although who knows you know perhaps I mean dolphins and whales it seems have that same capacity but most other animals would not, Usually, rescue more than their own brood, their own family, and put themselves in danger for risk for saving somebody, some creature's life, for that they don't know, or perhaps even an enemy. What is it in us that wants to do that? It's such a mystery. When we can connect with that innate movement towards wanting to see others happy. What it does, it operates in a few different ways. That selfless motivation connects us with others so we're not so alone. We feel part of a greater whole and we feel what love is. It also, in the same vein, takes us out of our own small drama breaks down the barriers and there's an ease and less of a focusing on what's the problems in my life. And there's good karma that comes from it. There's good karma when you act out of kindness and compassion and generosity. That's the kind of energy that comes back to you. So in the future there is good karma, and there is the immediate good karma of feeling uplifted by that noble act, whatever it happens to be. That's how karma works. It's not just somewhere 20 lifetimes from now, but in the moment as well when you're in the middle of uh, a noble action or feeling a noble intention it uplifts the heart. Now, you might say, well, to be practicing for the benefit of all beings, you know, um, I don't know if I can affect others like that. I mean, I'm just myself. What can I do? I'm lost in my own confusion most of the time. How can I affect others? Well, the way I see it, we're always affecting others around us. Whatever we do, whether we have a noble intention or not, there's no way that we're not affecting our immediate environment. Often it's with confusion or greed or aversion. You know, when you go into a room and you feel somebody's anger, how it might affect you, or somebody's anxiety, or somebody's grasping and greed, it has its effect on us. Just the same way when we walk into a room and we see somebody who um, is centered or who sees our beauty or our love, that affects us as well. The way I see it, I think I might have mentioned here before, is that we are all transmitter receiver machines. We're taking in information, digesting it, having some feelings thrown in and some thoughts, and sending it out. And we are susceptible to our environment and sometimes it can change us. Often it can change us. And sometimes we are um, the stronger energy in our environment and we can affect others with a strong intention. But all the time there's this exchange of energy and, um, and feelings that affects itself through us. One thing that the meditation practice shows is that there's a commonality of experience. The Buddha, the way I I sometimes liken it, you know, Gray Gray's Anatomy it kind of depicted how depicts how we are physiologically the commonality that we share, and the Buddha kind of wrote the Gray's analogy for the mind. This is uh, Gray's Anatomy for the mind. This is. This is how the mind works, this is how the heart works, this is how the human condition works, this is how you can uh, create more happiness and peace in in your life. And the, the reason he could do that, the reason the teachings make sense is that there is a commonality to the experience. The human condition is universal and when you see your own mind, what you're doing is not only getting an understanding of how it works in here, but how it works for all the other minds and hearts around you. And so, as you work on your own development and see your own confusion with compassion and see it with understanding, it's really a gift that you're giving to everyone around you. Because... There's more of an understanding when you see other people stuck in their confusion. On this uh, recent retreat, this, this meta retreat that I did, I kind of, I had in, when I wasn't really carefully aware, I had this subtle agenda of a kind of perfect re- retreat, you know. I'll now I'll really feel loving kindness for myself. Now I really feel it for my benefactor, and, yeah. and as I mentioned last week or two weeks ago, it sometimes it was really hard, and sometimes I'd be truly humbled and thinking, "My goodness, I teach stuff," you know, and I. It took me a little while, a few days, of just saying, "Gosh, this is so hard," you know. I, this is not quite the textbook practice that I had hoped for. Until one point, I realized, oh wow! If I had the perfect retreat, I wouldn't be able to be so helpful to others when they're coming and doing loving kindness practice and and going through all the stuff they're going through. I might be saying, gee, why don't they get it? <coughs> yeah, uh, that's too bad. You're going through that, you know. And remembering, wow, my perfect retreat, oh, that was really super. (laughs) I wouldn't be very helpful. But I saw, oh, every difficulty that I go through, great, I'm going to learn more about this territory. I'll really be able to understand when people are having a difficult time. And in a moment, it's, it's amazing how powerful just a little shift of perspective is. In a moment, I started to welcome all the difficulties. I mean, I didn't want to ask for more, but it was, oh, this is okay, now I'm learning about this. Oh yeah, this is really hard. When I didn't see the aversion, and, and it was there, and I got caught, and here I am trying to be loving and kind. Oh, there it is again. In just a moment, having that sense of doing it, not just as a Dharma teacher, you don't have to, of course, that that ups the ante a bit, but doing it just so I could understand how hard it is for people to love themselves or love others. You don't have to be a Dharma teacher to have that, that attitude. You're doing something very profound as you work on yourself and very profound for the people around you who will... Really I know what it's like to be really confused. I know what it's like to be really enraged. What a gift you can give others. So this idea of practice, of bodhicitta, of practicing with others in mind, not just for yourself, is something that I would really encourage you to um, explore and play around with. Because you're doing it anyway, it is having its impact. When you consciously state that intention to yourself, um, it brings a very uh, great uplifting of spirit to your practice. This is from a book called Natural Great Perfection by Nyosho Kempo, who is a great Tibetan teacher, one of the uh, main teachers. These days of Dzogchen, Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg and a number of people have, have studied with him. And he writes about Bodhicitta. And I'll just uh, read a little bit. He says, Whatever we do with selfish, narrow, egotistical motivation is very limited and probably temporary. There is a Tibetan saying that everything rests on the tip of one's motivation. This indicates the significance in every moment of cultivating altruistic selfish intention, bodhicitta, endowed with such a luminous heart, even the smallest words, deeds and actions that one accomplishes have vast and beneficial implications. This is the transforming magic of bodhicitta, a veritable wish-fulfilling jewel, not unlike the proverbial philosopher's stone that turns whatever it touches to gold. The most important thing is to have a good heart, a pure and sincere heart, which is actually the fundamental essence of us all, even if we don't actually usually realize it. The word for bodhicitta in Tibetan is sem kye. This literally means the opening or blossoming of the mind. It is the opposite of small mind, of self-preoccupation, self-contraction, and narrowness. We are not practicing for ourselves alone, since everybody is involved and included in the great scope of our prayers and meditations on this perfectly pure motivation. The natural outflow of so-called solitary meditation or prayer is spontaneous benefit for others. It's like the rays of the sun which spontaneously reach out. This innate bodhicitta is not something foreign to us, yet it is something we could relate to more, cultivate, generate, and embody We talk about vast and profound teachings of Dharma such as Dzogchen, but without the goodness of heart, this unselfishness, it is mere chatter, gossip, and rationalization. We can bring this intention to our practice and I would encourage you to see the fact that you're actually doing this and it's having a profound effect on others around you. can take some time to discuss the topic. And if not, then I have an exercise for you. (laughs) But I want to give you a chance. Anybody want to say anything about, about this? I
1: just want to say that I really appreciated you talking about the good aspects of human nature that have been kind of drawn out of the back in certain areas. <laughs> so it's <laughs> good
0: Yeah, this practice, or, or Buddhist teachings, it starts with the first noble truth, that there's suffering, and there can be so much of an emphasis on that, or we can be drawn to see what's wrong. That can be a habit of mind, that it can be very depressing. There's beauty, all of life. That first noble truth doesn't mean that all of life is suffering. It just means... See clearly that aspect of suffering, and you won't be running away from it. But there's also beauty and joy and goodness that we all have. We can nurture. Else?
2: Yeah. yeah,
0: it's it's easier for people. It's not. It, it won't bite you. <laughs> it's just helpful for people in the back. Ha, <laughs> ha, A black man. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: It was just a few blocks down from here, on kidding. Oregon Street, and Martin Luther King on Oregon Street. Oh yeah. For years, you know, yeah, that's that was the route. People would take Martin Luther King to get their hit from <laughs> from the Buddha. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just just a few blocks down.
1: Anybody else? If anyone can get enlightened if we all get enlightened. So, looking at it from a, I would say, a connection viewpoint or an absolute viewpoint,
0: it's not just about it, it's the way things are. And uh, <coughs> I guess that's the way it is someone who didn't understand. Yeah. Well, from one vantage point, there's no one to get enlightened. It is just. It seems like yeah. there is, but that's uh, that's a misperception.
1: Find you, Julie. I almost hesitate to
0: say, say this because it sounds like
1: I still notice it myself, but <laughs> Oh <I'm> go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. it's, it's good practice. practice had a big impact on me and I think about it a lot. I know there's a couple of homes and I play tapes. And and this one place that I go to uh, regularly, a new couple came in. And um, these are people who are, well, (coughs) she was in a (coughs) wheelchair. And (coughs) she seemed to take a great dislike to me. And uh, um, I found out later that her husband liked the music a lot and he wanted to stay. And she was always wanting to leave and go away. She'd make remarks about, oh, she doesn't know what she's doing. And one day she said, well, I have a lot better taste than she has. And I thought, well, what do I do with this? What do I do? And I've been trying to just kind of stay clear of it and not get involved in any kind of reaction. And so um, a few minutes later I came back and I said, gee Gertrude, why don't you bring some of your tapes and share them with us? Oh my god, wait a time, she came with this whole bag of tapes. And um, I praised her for bringing that and announced it to everybody. And she's my best buddy there now. And I understand that, and she's talked to me a lot. I've got a lot of information about it. How much of suffering she's gone through through all these transactions. It's quite a famous photographer. So I I just, uh, I mean, it was just like a miracle. It was just a, a wonder to me. And I just hope I can change things around like that when the situation comes up.
0: I remember I I used to uh, teach school in uh, 5th grade and 6th grade for a lot of years and it would be this challenge to see how I could if I could get into some really tough cookie of a heart, you know, to see if I could just melt it a little, because it's clear, especially around kids, that they just want to be loved and accepted and recognized, although often they're too cool to to show that, and we're no no different than those little kids. It's, it's a yearning for all of us, but we just often just don't know how to how to soften it and there's a way perhaps you know it's it's a good enough way to pass your time just to see if you can get in there it's beautiful and it's not always possible you know they don't want to have some unrealistic ideal that you know oh yes we're gonna transform everyone into you know, Gandhi or you uh, some, some loving human being. That's really beside the point. It's your intention that counts. You're doing your part, and if somebody can't hear it or can't feel it, then, you know, that's, that's up to them. And you might just take your distance at that point, like the Buddha said. It's not so good to hang around difficult energy for a long time. And sometimes the difficult energy is yourself. It's not so good to hang back yourself. <laughs> That's when you find somebody else who's got good energy, <laughs> who's maybe taken the bodhisattva vow or a <laughs> bodhicitta, because we forget. Okay. Is that it? Any other comments before we close? Okay. So let's close with a loving-kindness and do a, a short exercise the loving-kindness. I'm not sure if we've done this before here. Yeah.
2: So, uh, volunteer to watch the
1: door for the next month
0: or so? So volunteer to... That's basically sitting in the back, right? During the sitting and... Uh huh. Somebody be willing to do that for next month, and serve maybe somebody in the back. And uh. okay, great. Thanks, Maya. See if you could speak to John. Okay, so as I mentioned, there's this uh, aspect of the the loving kindness as far as the benefactor. What I'd like you to do would be just about five minutes. So go over about from 9.32, 9.33. I'd like you to think of somebody who's been an inspiration for you in your life. A teacher, a mentor. They might be alive or not alive. And send them some loving thoughts wherever you are right now. May you be happy and peaceful. May you feel my gratitude and love for you. Now, see them with their mentors or teachers. And back and back, those teachers, teachers, people you probably don't know, just get a sense of a lineage of people who have cared enough to share their understanding and their kindness with others. And just imagine them as a group and send these same thoughts of appreciation to that group. May you be happy. May you be peaceful in your journey. May you feel my gratitude and appreciation for what I've received through you. Now, having had a sense of a lineage of people who have passed on their kindness and wisdom from generation to generation through your benefactor to you, get a sense of yourself as a holder of that lineage. And include yourself. May I have happiness in my life. May I have real peace in my heart. May I grow in understanding and kindness. May I share the blessings that I've received with others skillfully. May my practice be a benefit (coughs) to all beings. And now think of someone, maybe more than one person comes to mind, who you are a guide for, a good friend to perhaps a child, perhaps somebody who looks to you for support or understanding, who also receives that lineage and send them these same kinds of thoughts. May you be happy and peaceful. May you grow in wisdom and kindness May you share your understanding and love with all you know. And now, get a sense of the people that they will touch through knowing you and through this passing on of good energy the people that they will touch and the people subsequently who will be touched for generations to come. Because this energy of kindness and caring has been passed on for all these generations through these beings. and Send some loving kindness to the people in generations to come who will be touched through the efforts of this lineage. May all of you have peace and happiness in your life. May you love well and share your love and your wisdom with others. May you be happy. May all beings everywhere be happy. This week, I would again encourage you when you sit or when you swim or when you do whatever it is you do for practice to get in touch with your intention and experiment with that intention of practicing for the benefit of all beings. And read the Inquiring Mind. Come the next week with it. Kind of have it out near your night table so you can so you remember. And people who want to see Barbara as a a buddy. And uh, that's it. Have a good week.